Hello all and welcome to episode 13 of the podcast. This is and indeed I am the Dream Filter. Today I'll be discussing the lead up to the Gulf War aka Operation Desert Shield which began with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait August 2nd to 4th 1990 and concluded with the US-led Operation Desert Storm of January 17th to February 28th 1991. The campaign was waged under President George H.W. Bush who was Director of Central Intelligence from January 1976 to January 77. Bush, as would later be the case with his son Dabia, had been a member of the Skull and Bones Secret Society. After his graduation from Yale, Bush Sr. moved into the oil business. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence that he had already become a CIA operative during the period and was active in this capacity during the time that led up to and beyond the assassination of JFK. But I do digress. If you're interested in the hidden background of George Bush Sr., there is a book you might be interested in. It is titled Family of Secrets and was written by Russ Baker, published in 2008. The entire seven-month conflict cost the lives of over 5,000 Kuwaiti military personnel and civilians, about 300 coalition forces, most of whom died in the course of Operation Desert Storm. An accurate total of fallen Iraqi military personnel is hard to come by, but is probably in the range of 30 to 40,000, while at least 3,500 Iraqi civilians, an extremely conservative estimate to say the least, also perished. Collateral damage, right? It's so harmless, so sterile sounding, isn't it? In addition to the dead, roughly 80,000 Iraqi troops were wounded. The economy, already majorly depreciated after the war with Iran, was now even further so. Destruction of Iraqi infrastructure during Operation Desert Storm was colossal, to the tune of some $250 billion. The vast majority of its GDP and foreign export revenue prior to the Gulf War was based on oil. However, on August 6, 1991, four days after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the UN Security Council imposed harsh economic sanctions and a total trade embargo on the nation. Following the end of the conflict, the sanctions would be beefed up further and largely maintained until mid-2003 when Hussein was toppled by the USA in Gulf War II. To put this into perspective, daily oil output had already sunk to 10% of its pre-war level by July 1991, a few months after the Gulf War had ended. While the UN would agree to reallow some oil exports in 1996, the infrastructure of the Iraqi oil industry was run down and hardly in a position to properly rejuvenate itself. The Gulf War was the biggest U.S. military campaign since the Vietnam War and is viewed by some as the first major conflict, an opening salvo, if you like, of the New World Order. There are several reasons for this. The multilateral nature of the operation was certainly eye-opening. The USA and USSR, for virtually the first time in the Cold War, 
which would soon officially end with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, were not opposed, with the Soviet Union providing diplomatic support. Among the 35 to 40 nations that took part in the US-led military operation were contingents from six out of the seven continents, with a dishonorable mention to the military forces of Antarctica. The UN General Assembly supported the military operation and given the unusual solidarity between the USA and Soviet Union, not to mention China, there would be no Security Council veto, thus fully legalizing the bloody carnage that the international community would inflict upon Iraq. The media, of course, was largely uncritical of the US and its allies, which we'll touch on a bit later. Also, several speeches by President Bush during and in the aftermath of the conflict made verbatim reference to the New World Order. I will refer to some of these excerpts which have been collated on the website canadianliberty.com, all lowercase. The title of the page is New World Order Speeches of President George H.W. Bush and it was posted in October 2013. I will be reading the pertinent passages from some of these speeches at several points of today's episode and maybe the next one or two as well. Now, let's briefly discuss the lead-up to the invasion of Kuwait. As you well know, Iraq was already under extreme economic pressure as a result of the war with Iran. And war-related infrastructure damage ran into the many tens of billions of dollars. Iraq was also in debt to several of its neighbors to the tune of many tens of billions. One of these neighbors was Kuwait. To put it briefly, tensions were rising between Iraq and Kuwait for several reasons, including a long-running territorial dispute which was based in the era when Iraq and Kuwait were both under the rule of the Ottoman Empire. The other major reason was oil. Kuwait, in addition to the UAE, apparently took the decision to go over the oil production quotas that had been set for them by OPEC, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, in order to drive down the price of Iraqi oil, thus pressuring Hussein to pay off his war debts to Kuwait and compromise on their territorial disputes. On July 25, 1990, about a week before the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, April Glasby, met with Saddam Hussein and his deputy, Tariq Aziz. This meeting would go on to become an incident of considerable notoriety. More than one transcript of the exchange has been made available, and the contents therein are indisputable. Let me just quote a little portion for you. Hussein. As you know, for years now I have made every effort to reach a settlement on our dispute with Kuwait. There is to be a meeting in two days. I am prepared to give negotiations only this one more brief chance. When we, brackets, the Iraqis, meet, brackets, with the Kuwaitis, and we see there is hope, then nothing will happen. But if we are unable to find a solution, then it will be natural that Iraq will not accept death. Glasby, what solutions would be acceptable? Hussein, 
If we could keep the whole of the Shat el Arab, our strategic goal in our war with Iran, we will make concessions, brackets, to the Kuwaitis. But if we are forced to choose between keeping half of the Shat and the whole of Iraq, brackets, i.e. in Saddam's view, including Kuwait, then we will give up all of the Shat to defend our claims on Kuwait to keep the whole of Iraq in the shape we wish it to be. What is the United States' opinion on this? Glasby. We have no opinion on your Arab, Arab conflicts, such as your dispute with Kuwait. Secretary Baker has directed me to emphasize the instruction first given to Iraq in the 1960s that the Kuwait issue is not associated with America. End of portion. The secretary of whom she spoke was Secretary of State James Baker. It's also worth noting that the day before this meeting, Margaret D. Tutwiler, a spokeswoman for the State Department, said the following. We do not have any defense treaties with Kuwait, and there are no special defense or security commitments to Kuwait. In more than one way, right before the invasion of Kuwait, Hussein was given the clear impression that he would not be attacked by the USA in the event of an Iraqi-Kuwaiti conflict. As you well know, the Iraqi military invaded on August 2nd. That Iraq was given a green light by the USA was either coordinated deception, incompetence, or a mixture of both. The Iraqi invasion force reached the capital of Kuwait well inside of a day and had subdued virtually all meaningful resistance within another. Before long, Iraq had deposed the Kuwaiti monarchy, installed a puppet government and begun to absorb some of the excess wealth to be found within the Kuwaiti central bank. The reaction of the so-called international community was swift. As mentioned earlier, the UN placed its first sanctions on Iraq on August 6th. This was titled Resolution 661. Less than three weeks later came Resolution 665, which allowed for a naval blockade of Iraq to enforce sanctions. On August 8th, Bush ordered a quarter of a million troops to be deployed to Saudi Arabia, which shared a border with Iraq. This would require at least a full month, but probably more, to fully realize. And in November, he would more than double the number deployed. Meanwhile, the month or two, or three or four, after the invasion of Kuwait was punctuated by repeatedly stated concerns of a potential Iraqi invasion of Saudi Arabia, which, if pulled off, would have put Iraq in charge of the majority of the world's oil reserves. On September 11, 1990, Bush made a speech before a joint session of Congress. This is a verbatim excerpt. We stand today at a unique and extraordinary moment. The crisis in the Persian Gulf, as grave as it is, also offers a rare opportunity to move toward an historic period of cooperation. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order, can emerge. A new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace. An era in which the nations of the world, East and West, 
north and south can prosper and live in harmony. A hundred generations have searched for this elusive path to peace, while a thousand wars raged across the span of human endeavor. Today that new world is struggling to be born, a world quite different from the one we've known, a world where the rule of law supplants the rule of the jungle, a world in which nations recognize the shared responsibility for freedom and justice. A world where the strong respect the rights of the weak. This is the vision that I shared with President Gorbachev in Helsinki. He and other leaders from Europe, the Gulf, and around the world understand that how we manage this crisis today could shape the future for generations to come. The test we face is great, and so are the stakes. This is the first assault on the new world that we seek, the first test of our mettle. Had we not responded to this first provocation with clarity of purpose, if we do not continue to demonstrate our determination, it would be a signal to actual and potential despots around the world. In the middle of September, the Pentagon announced that a quarter of a million Iraqi soldiers and 1,500 tanks were stationed on the border with Saudi Arabia, ready to invade. The evidence cited was a collection of classified satellite images, which is code word for there is no evidence, but just trust us anyway. The revelation, for lack of a better term, was covered in a largely unquestioning manner by the international establishment media, with one notable exception. Jean Heller of the St. Petersburg Times in Florida was apparently unconvinced by the propaganda. The newspaper gained a pair of commercial Soviet satellite images of the specific area mentioned by the Pentagon, which were taken at precisely the same time as the so-called classified satellite images referenced by the US military establishment. The desert on the border with Saudi Arabia was unequivocally empty. The expose would ultimately be published on the front page of the newspaper on January 6th 11 days before the start of Operation Desert Storm. However, it was largely ignored by the rest of the government media complex. Heller aside, general coverage of the conflict by the establishment media was almost wholly sycophantic. As the myriad mechanisms of the international community, led by the UN, US and allied Gulf nations, continued to consolidate and further synchronize their position, media demonization of the Iraqi regime, often taking their cue from Bush himself, gained more momentum by the day. From the outset, Bush compared the invasion of Kuwait to the German annexation of Czechoslovakia in 1938. According to the Gannett Foundation, the mainstream media in North America, Britain and Europe 
compared Hussein with Hitler well over a thousand times during the Operation Desert Shield in both written word and cartoon form. Thus, the spectra of an independent actor holding control over the bulk of the world's oil reserves was being merged with, if not partially supplanted by the notion of good versus evil. Not unlike a comic book or Hollywood movie. Of course, in this case, Hussein was the evil, while the international community, led by the USA, was the good. On September 19, Bush talked at a San Francisco political fundraiser. The following is an excerpt. Ours is a generation to finally see the emergence of a promising, exciting new world order, which we've sought for generations. And we are witness to the first demonstration of this new partnership for peace. A united world response to Iraq's aggressive ambition. A showcase example of the corporate media acting as nothing more than a vapid mouthpiece. A syphilitic whore pimped out in order to disseminate US government propaganda across much of the world. Took root on October 10th. A 15-year-old girl who provided only her first name, Nayira, testified before the Congressional Human Rights Caucus of the U.S. House of Representatives. During this ostensibly emotional testimony, she spoke of how she worked as a volunteer at the Al-Adan Hospital in Kuwait. With her own eyes, she affirmed, Nayira witnessed how the occupying Iraqi soldiers forcibly removed a large number of babies from their incubators, carrying the incubators off and ultimately leaving the babies to, quote, die on the cold, hard floor. The story, backed up by Amnesty International, among others, caused an immediate international sensation. It was widely and unquestioningly covered by the corporate media, including by the ABC and NBC on that very evening on October 10th. This shocking testimony would be referred to by numerous US politicians, including President Bush, on numerous occasions over the following weeks and months as they sought to drum up public support for looming war. While Iraq consistently denied the allegations, the international government media complex and much of the American and Western public were having none of it, and were increasingly enthusiastic over the prospect of war. As late as January 13th, three days before the USA and allies commenced their massive bombing campaign, the Sunday Times of Britain reported that at least 92 deaths had been confirmed in relation to the incubator atrocity. To cut a long story short, the incubator atrocity never occurred and the testimony by Nayira was completely fraudulent. An open fact even admitted on mainstream sources such as Wikipedia. About a year after Operation Desert Storm took place, Amnesty retracted their earlier support for the testimony from Neira. Great job, guys. It was in the middle of March 1991, with the US-led slaughter having just been completed, that the truth of the matter made its first flirtatious appearance. 
John Martin of the ABC confirmed that some patients had indeed died when the medical personnel stopped coming to work as a result of the Iraqi occupation. However, he also stated that Iraqi soldiers, quote, almost certainly had not stolen hospital incubators and left hundreds of Kuwaiti babies to die. In early January 1992, again about a year after Operation Desert Storm was carried out, uh, better late than never, I suppose, a piece in the New York Times written by John MacArthur revealed that Nayira had a surname. It was El Sabah, and she was the daughter of Kuwait's ambassador to the USA. Her completely bogus testimony had been arranged by Citizens for a Free Kuwait, a front group for the exiled Kuwaiti government. If all of this wasn't dirty enough in its own right, Citizens for a Free Kuwait had hired the services of a New York-based PR firm named Hill & Knowlton. The firm whose president Craig Fuller had worked for Bush when the latter was vice president in the Reagan regime, was paid over $10 million to bolster American public support for the march to war. According to the well-titled book, A Century of Media, A Century of War, written by Robin Anderson, Hill and Knowlton spent a million dollars to figure out the best course of action for their duplicitous task eventually deciding to concentrate on atrocities, real or imagined, as the key pillar of their plan. Following the Neaira testimony before the Congressional Human Rights Caucus, which was filmed by Hill and Knowlton, the PR firm had a video news release sent off to approximately 700 TV stations across the US. A study was undertaken by media watchdog FAIR of media coverage of the American and Allied military buildup in Saudi Arabia between August 8th and January 3rd, 1991. The watchdog found that of all coverage given to the Gulf crisis by ABC during the period, less than 1% was in any way critical, directly or indirectly of the saber-rattling of America and its allies. The figure for CBS was also below 1%, while NBC was able to crack the magic figure with a grand total of 1.5%. FAIR also did an analysis of about 50 hours of related television coverage from the period, ultimately finding that about 1% was critical of or showed criticism of the American position in any meaningful way. If you would like to read an excellent analysis of the sycophantic, worse-than-useless role of establishment media and its role as a propaganda-disseminating mouthpiece of the US government during the entire seven-month crisis, I would like to recommend an article to you. You will find it on the FAIR website. It was written in April 1991 by Jim Norekis and is titled Gulf War Coverage. The worst censorship was at home. On November 29th, amidst the fierce ongoing propaganda campaign, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 678, which gave Iraq an 
ultimatum. It had until January 15, 1991 to completely withdraw from Kuwait. If it didn't, they would be expelled by force. The resolution was the 12th in connection to the crisis, the first being Resolution 660 on August 2nd, which condemned the invasion, demanding an immediate withdrawal. Resolution 678 not only reaffirmed all resolutions going back to the one on August 2nd, but would be the final one of 1990. It was adopted by 12 to 2, Cuba and Yemen being the only ones to vote against it. China typically vetoed resolutions that targeted sovereign states in such a manner, but apparently abstained in order to gain some relief from sanctions that had been placed upon it following the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989. In what is open knowledge and even conceded by mainstream sources, the USA provided what some of us may term as financial incentives the more honest among us as bribes to the countries that voted yes, while openly penalizing those who dared to vote no. Yemen, for example, would have its Saudi-based workers kicked out of the authoritarian kingdom as a direct result. It would also lose significant foreign aid from the USA, World Bank and IMF. Democracy Human rights, freedom of the press, peace. If there was anything in my guts at current, I would most assuredly vomit it up. As we all know, Hussein did not agree to withdraw his troops, and the deadline passed. During the early hours of January 17th, George Bush ordered the commencement of Operation Desert Storm. He went on live television two hours after the commencement of the air campaign to address the nation. I will not read you the complete transcript. It's rather long. Here's a snippet. This is an historic moment. We have in this past year made great progress in ending the long era of conflict and called war. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. A world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, as we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. Boys and girls, that shall be all for today. Remember, question everything. Do your own research, keep a healthy, open mind, and above all, never forget. You've been given an intellect, so use it. Goodbye.